Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here and share the Word of God with you. If you haven't noticed already, as you walked into our hallways and our buildings, you may have noticed some things are changing. And we have cornered off this back end of our space, and we are um, continuing on our construction. And so because of that, we don't have what we normally would have, where we had a few seats to sit down perhaps for food in the MP or what we call the multi-purpose room. So that has been cornered off. And so we had different locations now where we'll put the food. And so I hope that you will be able to still stay and enjoy fellowship and food with us afterwards. I hear the menu is good today. It's marinated uh, ribeye, so that's pretty good. And after you go out, you can, you know, to my left, your right, you can get on that line to get that food. Please stay for fellowship. We even ordered extra circular tables so that you eat in the hallways if you'd like. But we also wanted to uh, set apart the classrooms now. So if you want to sit down, we would love it. I would love it if you would take the food and you can go to classroom 201, which is the closest classroom to me here, to us here. And we've already set apart and reserved seats there so you can just sit. And the other classrooms are being used by our children. So it may take a little bit of time to transition to regular tables and chairs. So uh, please do sit and enjoy and have fun, uh, fellowship afterwards. And we'll talk a little bit about fellowship today in our sermon. But I think it really is a wonderful thing and wonderful opportunity that we have to see how God has blessed us. And we are building out our church. Even this space will be expanded behind you and toward maybe like uh, 20 feet back behind you. And so it's going to be pretty exciting. And so I would like to ask that all of you, most importantly, keep this whole venture in your prayers. More than anything, I hope that you can continue to pray for our church, especially this construction project, and those that are working on this project with their physical labor and also the design and all the things that are going on. By God's grace, we had our permits approved. If you didn't notice already, that's why we are continuing on our construction. So let's continue to keep this in prayer. And it's a very exciting season for our church. I'm very happy, whether you can tell or not. Uh, I am happy, and I am very thankful for what God is doing here in this place. So with that said, let us start this time of hearing the message with a prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, in thankfulness, we now receive your word. We pray that it would now go deep into our hearts so that it can bear good fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be reading the first six verses. If you have a pew Bible, you can find it on page 949, Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 1 through 6. And if you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. 
Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We come to the final chapter of Hebrews. So we've been on this journey for a while in the book of Hebrews. And in this section, in this final section, the final chapter, we see what you notice to be a pastoral address. The concerns that the author of Hebrews will start to write out. And these pastoral directives will be followed up next week by the communal directives. And we will go over that next week. We'll finish up with a benediction and a final personal note by the author. So we are all on the last stretch of Hebrews. And so this is an exciting time for us. My wife and I were talking a little bit about, you know, our childhood. Uh, I mentioned this before, but I grew up in the distant land called Queens. And in Queens, there was a town called Elmhurst, and that's where I grew up. And I would, you know, joke, you know, because she was from another town. Uh, It was very different from my town. I would joke that, you know, it's kind of like a ghetto town. Not really ghetto, but not really hood but like mid, so not upper class or middle class, but maybe lower to middle class. But if you were with me on Wednesdays, I did mention something that I personally liked. I won't get too much into it, but I really liked baseball. I loved playing baseball, and I was pretty good at it. I got bored with playing with other elementary school students, so in my neighborhood, they used to play something called stickball. It's where you take the stick of a broom, un, you know, unscrew it, and then you would tape one of the ends so that it's a handle, and then you would throw a handball against the wall, and then you would try to hit it with this broom. It's called stickball. Growing up, stickball was all the rage. And in the neighborhood that I was growing up in, the kids played it. And these were high school kids, maybe sometimes older, but high school kids of perhaps a little bit unsavory character if I may put it nicely. But I really wanted to play, you know? I wanted a challenge, right? So in my, my parents don't know this, but in my elementary school days, I did go up to them and said, can I play? And they laughed, like, sure, kid, whatever. And I would smash the ball, and they would be surprised, and I would still play with them. So they let me play with them. And one of the things that I still remember is one of those guys he invited me upstairs to his apartment, and then he would open up his closet. And I still uh, vividly remember this closet because it would open up with two doors. And on the doors and on the inside, it was filled with weapons. So he would show that to me, and he'd be like, isn't this awesome? And I wouldn't know how to respond. It's like, that's pretty cool, I guess. <laughs> but I liked playing stickball with them. I liked impressing these older guys in our neighborhood. But one day my grandma saw me playing and then she took me, when I came to my grandma, she took me aside and she just yelled at me for as long as she could. And I was really upset. I was like, why would, why would you yell at me? This is something that I like to do. 
Now I think looking back, you know, because of my neighborhood and how I grew up with, in fact, every single person was part of a gang in one way or another, even up until my high school days and people would approach me in like the store or arcade where we would go, people would always ask me what gang I would be a part of. You know, are you KP, are you BK, and all that, all that kind of stuff. But perhaps, I think back now, perhaps my grandma did save me. But one of the things that I did take away was I really wanted camaraderie. And I think we could kind of relate to that. It's not just the, simply the challenge that you want, but you want the camaraderie. You want that kind of brotherhood or sisterhood, especially when you're growing up. But that doesn't change now. People come to our church, and we want camaraderie. We want fellowship. And this is exactly what this passage is addressing. This is what this passage will address. And here, in the first verse, camaraderie among Christians is addressed. However, this is not a standalone. It's not just simply talking about friendship. It's coming from somewhere. What's the context of this camaraderie? It comes directly after the last verses of chapter 12. You know, in our minds, we kind of segment away the chapters, but that, the chapters came way later. When letters were written, they were just written. It wasn't like, here's chapter 12 of my letter. The chapter numbers were given later so that we can help memorize it. That's why the numbers are given. Chapters and verses are given so people can help memorize it. Here's the address. You go to chapter 12, verse 28, 29, things like that. But it was a flow. And so when we are talking, now he's addressing his pastoral concerns about camaraderie. He flows it from what context? The end of chapter 12, which we went over two weeks ago. In the end of the final warning in his letter, the author states in verses 20 and 29, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's the backdrop of verse 1 this morning. The backdrop, the context, is worship. Not just any kind of worship, not casual worship, not casual worship where you're just, you know, picking out appetizers in your, in, in your mouth and then throwing the toothpick out and sipping your coffee. That's not the casual worship that this is talking about. He is saying we ought to worship with God with reverence and awe. That means you're on the edge of your seat because of what? Because of who we are addressing when we worship God. We are addressing God who is a consuming fire. That's the backdrop, and then this sentence comes up. So if you understand this, this isn't just let's be hunky-dory with each other. Let's just be friendly with each other. This is something deeper. That's what you have to notice. And so it is under this backdrop we come to verse 1 in chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. And the word for brotherly love is Philadelphia. Philadelphia, or brotherly love, comes from what? How do we have brotherly love? Where does it flow from? Philadelphia flows from our acceptable worship to God, a worship given in reverence and awe. 
So fellowship then isn't some simple, casual word when it's being addressed here. Fellowship is part of our worship to God, and it is a natural outflow from our direct service to Him. And this kind of fellowship, the camaraderie that we were looking for, brotherly love, is then vastly different from the world's. And the rest of the five verses this morning in this passage is going to address what brotherly love is. And at first glance, you might think, what is all, what is verse 4, what is verse 5 have to do with brotherly love? Let me tell you, it does. And that's what it's going to address. A lot of people have had this challenge. You know, I do love God, but I don't like the people in the church. I love God, but I don't like people. Is that possible? Is that possible in this case that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? Can you love God and not love the brethren in the church? And the answer is, it is impossible because of the natural outflow that we see that the Bible is showing us. If you love God, you will love the brethren. We'll, we'll get to why. But you see this natural progression. It's undeniable. So brotherly love here is clearly referring to something more than, excuse me, more than just emotion or feeling. It is an outflow of worship. Then that love that comes out of this worship would be reflective of our honor to God when we love one another. Now, brotherly love isn't absent emotions, but there is also emotions, there's commitment, there's duty, there's sacrifice, and all these things would bind the believers together. It's that kind of love. Brotherly love is a binding kind of love. What is revolutionary about even this first verse is that Philadelphia, the word Philadelphia being used in the ancient world would have baffled people. And I'm going to tell you why. Because Philadelphia, which means philo, it's love, and Delphia is from Adolphos, which means brother, so brotherly love, was a term people only used. It was a term restricted to only actual physical brothers and sisters. But here, Philadelphia is being used for all people in the faith community. And this is a directive that you can see even given by Jesus Christ when he says in Matthew 23, 8, you are all brothers. Now, today's world, we see even non-Christians casually call each other brother or sister. But this would have been a foreign concept in the ancient world, even strange. One second century satirist named Lucian of Samosata would write about the relationship between Christians, and he would say the relationship between Christians are so unusual. They would call each other's call each other brothers, and to illustrate that point, he would call attention to how they treated their possessions and their willingness to share what they had with one another. That's what he saw in Christians. And it was so strange. This is what he would write. 
Moreover, their original lawgiver persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despise all things equally and view them as common property, accepting such teachings by tradition and without any precise belief. He would be confused. He's like, what is this belief? The fact that you would call someone outside of your immediate family, a brother or sister, or even share Philadelphia with one another was completely nonsensical, even ridiculous to people. What? You would go around purchasing meals for one another? You would regularly give to the expense of those in the staff and ministries of the church? That's ridiculous. It would be a completely foreign concept. In fact, it was precisely this characteristic, however, the willingness to share their possessions unselfishly that stood out to non-Christians all over the ancient world. So we are not to miss the importance of this first verse. We are not to miss the word brotherly love, but also the word continue. Continue. Don't you see? We didn't start brotherly love. You are continuing it, but it has been started by someone else. Just a few chapters before, in Hebrews chapter 2, 11, it says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This brotherly love that we are to continue started from God. God is the source. When you become a Christian, you are already marked with this brotherly love. The Christian is then called to then continue in this love. How? How do you continue in this love? And that's the rest of this passage. There are two promotions and two prohibitions that follow after this. There are two do's and two do-nots. And they will elaborate more clearly on what brotherly love or Philadelphia that flows out of worship to God is. So let's get to it. In verse 2 it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The first promotion or the first do is to show hospitality. Hospitality is the word philozenia. Again, philo means love, and xenia is the word stranger or outsider. And philozenia is translated as hospitality. It is showing love then to what? It is showing love to those outside of your immediate family. You don't show hospitality to your family. That's not what you call it. When you feed your family member, when you take care of them, when you clothe them, you don't say, I'm being hospitable to my child. That's just something that you do. We call it hospitality when we do it for people outside of our family. And that is precisely what Christians are called to do. An immediate example that people would have thought of when they read this verse would have been from Genesis 18, precisely because of the tag that happens after hospitality. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In Genesis 18, it says that the Lord appeared to Abraham in the oaks of Mamre. That's where Abraham's tents were. In the heat of the day, 
Bam, they were just standing there. And when Abraham looked outside, behold, or boom, they were there. In the desert wilderness, and I know some of you have been to Israel, some of you have been to Egypt, I've been to the Sahara, and in the desert wilderness, the temperatures during the day go over 100 degrees, very quickly, even reaching as high as over 120 degrees. So in the heat of the day, you just don't go outside. That's crazy. You would die, right? But when Abraham looked outside, he saw three men. That's what it says in Genesis 18. So what does he do? When he sees these people outside, what does he do? Does he go, look at those crazy guys. They're going to die. I'm not going outside. It's way too hot. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He runs outside to them, bows his face to the ground, and begs them to stay with him. He says this, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. Now if you look at the Hebrew, the language for the word Lord is a little ambiguous here. It's from the word Adonai, which can either mean the Lord or it can just be an honorific address, meaning my Lord, right? But here's the point. I don't think it matters. I don't think that matters, whether it's capital L Lord or lowercase Lord. The point of that passage is that regardless, Abraham treated these three men in the highest honor possible, and in doing so, he unawares, he entertained angels. Now, I've been going over some Greek this morning, and it's because I want to show you this fantastic progression. The first was Philadelphia, Philo, Adelphas, love, Philadelphia, brotherly love. Then we see Philo, Xenia, love for the stranger. And now we see another word that the author uses. It's the word entertain. And that word entertain is, is Zenizo. It's from Xenia, Zenizo. So there is a progression. Zenizo means to entertain a guest or a stranger. And I think we're not to miss this progression because when we entertain guests, when we show hospitality, when we have brotherly love, it goes back to honoring God. That's what it means. In Matthew 25, 35, Jesus says of those on his right, the sheep, his sheep, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. We're not to miss that what we do for our brethren, we do for Christ. That's how Christ sees our love for one another. By the way, there's a following verse after Matthew. After he says this, he says this, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. That leads us to the very next verse in Hebrews. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. This idea of hospitality extends now to verse 3, 
where we see that hospitality is, yes, more than an emotion, but I'm going to go even further. Hospitality is more than an emotion, but it's even more than an action. You're like, what? What could be even more than emotion or action? What is hospitality? Hospitality is an attitude. Remember those that were in prison and mistreated. And remember those that are in prison as if you were in prison with them. This is a directive to a mindset, to an attitude. And this flow opposes the world's order, where many would start first with the emotion. I don't feel like doing this. Why should I give when I'm not even a cheerful giver? I know the Bible says be a cheerful giver, so I'm not cheerful. I don't want to give. We start with emotion. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. What do we start start with? This is about a mindset or attitude that precedes the action, which precedes the emotion. How do you maintain brotherly love? You start with the attitude. Here's another example by Lucian. There was a man named Peregrinus Proteus. And Proteus was arrested and imprisoned in Palestine for his beliefs. He was a Christian. And on this account that Lucian writes, he says that the Christians rallied their full support for this brother. They tried, they first tried everything in their power to get Proteus released. And when that failed, what did they do? They bribed the guards. That's how far they went. They bribed the guards. And you're like, what? Bribed? How can that, how can that be a Christian thing to bribe? But I'm going to get to the good part. They bribed the guards. Why? So that they could go into the prison with him. And afterwards, they would sleep inside Proteus' cell as if they were fellow prisoners. You know, prisons in the ancient world are different from prisons today. If you were imprisoned, they didn't feed you or clothe you. Family members would have to come and give you the food or clothes, or you'd be naked and you would starve. But you see, not only were the Christians acting like direct family members to Proteus, they went above and beyond what even the pagans did by identifying themselves with the prisoner by sleeping in the cell with him so he would not be alone. They would organize travel to Palestine so that they can continue to maintain this brotherly love. Sort of like a meal train that we have when someone has a newborn in their family, but this was like a prison train. And they would organize it so that they would stay with Proteus. And so at the end of verse 3, we see the reasoning. You do this, why? Why do you do all of this? Because you are all members of one body. You are a member of Christ's body. When we give true worship to God, we recognize that we are being engrafted into the family of God. And the image that I want you to take heart to, that I want you to remember, is God is here, and if we are here as we are being engrafted to God, what naturally happens is that we come together, do we not? 
And so when we are being engrafted to God, brotherly love is a natural consequence of being engrafted to God. The authentic worship of the true God constitutes even demands that we express brotherly love. But this allusion to the body is now going to go to the two prohibitions or the two do-nots. We see in verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. At first glance, you might think, what does this have to do with brotherly love at all and worship to God? What does that have to do with worship? Let me give you the answer. The answer is everything. It has everything to do with it. Human sexuality is a gift from God. It is in our sinful state that we rebel against God and take this gift and defile it. We respect the gift because we respect the giver. God is the giver, and we honor Him by using the gift in the way it was intended for His glory and our benefit. A lot of people have noticed and asked, why does it seem that when we read the Bible, why does it seem that when people rebel against God, the first thing that they do is they are immoral sexually? And I would respond, isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? In almost every list of Paul's, the Apostle Paul's do-nots, he starts with sexual immorality. That's the first thing he starts with. What is it about sexual immorality that is so detestable to God? You know, when we look at the atrocities of war, you know, I was uh, listening to what the Japanese did when they would, the imperial army, what they would do when they would conquer other nations, was so detestable, was so immoral that I can't say those things here in the sermon. It was so bad. And it was sexual immorality to the most depraved degree where your imaginations probably wouldn't have gone there. But to understand why it is so bad, we need to understand why God would give us such a good gift in the first place. I was, um, I tell this story a little bit, but not the full story. Tell the story a little bit. I, I did some relief work in Makapala, Hawaii. And I just, personality-wise, I like doing relief work. Um, I don't have to talk to people. I just do the work, right? And so being a little bit more introverted, it's great. I could just do the work. So when we were in Japan, I was in heaven. Um, you just did the work because Japanese are naturally not that talkative, except uh, when I did go to um, Japan, there was this one man who just decided to talk to me and he was just, he just wanted to talk to me. So that was, that was interesting. Anyway, but I was in Makapala, Hawaii, and we were there, and it was just kind of an enclosed village, a tribe, and we shingled the roofs again. Their roofs were all breaking down, so we did some relief work by helping re-shingle them. But the hosts were so delighted that we came and did it. They gave us a celebratory dinner. And in this celebratory dinner, they did a lot of performances. We didn't ask for it. We just wanted to do the relief work and go. 
But in this celebratory dinner, um, the chief's first daughter, one of the presentations was she, she did the hula for us. And if you don't know anything about the hula, the hula is a little bit suggestive, okay? So we were watching this, this whole presentation and the chief's daughter came out and she did this hula dance and she was like maybe 12 or 13. And our team looked at each other and we're like, this seems a little inappropriate, right? We, we felt uncomfortable watching this because it looked suggestive. But what I did also notice was I looked at the chief and his wife and they were watching their daughter perform this dance and their faces were beaming with pride. They were so proud of her. I saw something and I noticed something that this depravity that we are under is a blanket that we don't even notice. No longer can we celebrate human sexuality. No longer can we love the fact that our sons and daughters are going to grow up and they're going to enjoy this gift from God in the marriage bed with one another as husband and wife. We can't see it that way. And it has been tainted even when we look at something that is innocent and natural. No longer do we look upon human sexuality as a gift. We have been so defiled by the world that we can only see it as a dark tool for self-gratification. Not something that promotes the well-being of human flourishing as God had intended. We can't celebrate what's good anymore because we have been tainted. And when sex gets tainted, everything follows. Not only sex, but everything becomes about self-gratification. And we then, knowingly or unknowingly, it matters not, we become idolaters. Sexual impurity is idolatry. Instead of worshiping the true God, who reigns forever and ever, we worship the dirt, the creature, and the self. Idolatry is disgusting because it refuses to acknowledge God for who He is and it reduces us to mere physical matter or material. And so the writer writes, the marriage bed must be held in honor by all. Marriage must be held in honor by all because of the one who instituted it. God gave us marriage, and when someone else comes along and wants to redefine it, no matter what spectrum it is in the redefinition, it's not up to us to say yes to that. God already defined it, and we must recognize that it was the devil first that went to Eve and asked did God really say? That's everything now. Every time they want to question you about your mores, your values, the question now is, did God really say that though? That's what the devil said to Eve. But for us, the answer should be a resounding, yes, God did say. He defined what a marriage is and commands us now to keep it holy. Marriage is holy. It's implied with the reverse statement that follows as well. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. 
It can be defiled. That's what it means because it is sacred. And here the definition of sexual immorality is this. Any sexual act outside of the confines solely of a husband and wife, man who is married to a woman, if you do that, you profane what God has made holy. That is a scary fact, and it's truth, and it's something that we need to understand. When you marry someone, you become one flesh, and that's the design of God. And Jesus says in Matthew 19, 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is an act of God. Uh, there is a social media trend that has been happening, and it's people asking guys, often wives, asking their husbands how often they think about the Roman Empire. Uh, I have to be honest, I, for me, I think about it almost every day, if not literally every day. Passages like this make me think about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire fell. Why? Because at the end of the Roman Empire, they were confusing marriage. Isn't that fascinating? They were confusing male and female. Men were acting like women. Women were acting like men. Women would dress up in armor. They would have these spears. They would walk around like men. They would stick pigs, and they would call it a revolution. That was the end of the Roman Empire. And it's incredible to think about that. As we see what's happening in the Western world today, why did we as a society start rejecting gender roles? Amazingly enough, if you look at the timeline, didn't we start rejecting gender roles after the quote-unquote sexual revolution? You know, what did sex, drugs, and rock and roll really damage? It didn't damage drugs. It didn't damage rock and roll. What did it damage? And yes, Sexual immorality will destroy your brotherly love and your worship to God. It will be tainted. Here's the warning, but here is the assurance as well. So there is a warning, but there is a, an assurance. It says God will protect His glory. He will judge those that are sexually immoral and adulterous. The final say belongs to God. You think you could live whatever way you want without any consequences? No, God will protect what He has instituted. God is judge. He will not let fornicators continue on destroying His creation because God is judge. And for us, we are to remember that in our sanctification and pursuit of holiness, sexual integrity is foundational to the worship of God. And so, let marriage be held in honor among all of us here. Let's go to verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The second do not comes as another warning against idolatry, the love of money. Some have said that the Bible only whispers about sexual immorality while speaking loudly about greed. Some have said that Jesus talks way more about greed than sexual immorality. Well, no. The Bible talks about both being idolatrous and warns us against it. And both of it, the Bible talks quite loudly. If the first offense was sexual sin, the second is like it in that it is the sin of greed. They are both similar in its 
priority of self-gratification. And we must also see that greed or the love of money is defiling what is sacred. And so the question might be, how does loving money defile what is sacred? It gives us the answer right away. The love of money will make you malcontent. You will never be content if you love money. Not if you have one dollar or if you have a million dollars because love of money and trust in God are mutually exclusive. Loving money will keep you from serving God and keep you from helping your brother. It will not make you a giver, let alone a cheerful one. You will only think about protecting your own possessions rather than sharing it. Those that are less fortunate than you, you think they deserve it because they are less deserving than you, you who work so hard for your money, those lazy bums. You will not identify with the suffering, mistreated or imprisoned, because they will be a drain on your finances. Go all the way to Palestine to visit some schlub in the prison? Get out of here. It's my finances. It's my money. It's my possessions. It's my stuff. Now, I will make a side note. I would never advocate for some kind of nationwide socialistic reform. That's pure evil. However, the Christian doesn't look at material as mine or yours. In fact, it's not even the first thing that would pop up in your mind. What do I mean by that? The Christian, in his true worship to God, is content. He is happy. He is satisfied because he doesn't trust in money, but he trusts in God. When you put your trust in God, you see material goods as blessings from God and blessings you want to share, just like good news, the gospel. If you have good news, you realize you want to share it. Your first thought when you have good news isn't, why aren't other people sharing it? I'll wait till some other person starts sharing the good news. That's not the first thought that you have. Or how you can keep some of this good news and maybe ration out the rest. That's not what you think. The first thought when you have good news is, how can I share it? And that's exactly how Christians acted with their money. It was an incredible thing to witness in the first and second century church where the Christians would joyfully give to each other as they had need. And it acted as a witness to the Christian faith. In Acts 6, when the church began to organize and mature in their way of distributing goods and food to those that had need, it says this in verse 7 that a great many of the priests, and these are Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. Wait, they were just giving. Why would Jewish priests convert to Christianity? Why would that be the case? In the ancient Jewish world, it was the priests that were responsible for the distribution of goods, especially to the poor and widowed. But I believe that they were able to see a system that finally worked. They tried so hard to get a system to get food to the poor, to get food to the widows. It just didn't work. But they finally saw a system that worked. Why? Because it wasn't emotion and it wasn't action first. It was attitude. The heart changed. That's why actions followed. That's why emotions came. And that's why it worked. 
You know why I know socialism will never work? Because it never deals with the heart. It only deals with the action. It doesn't even deal with the emotion. That's why it's just a terrible, terrible system. But for the Christian, it's God who gave us a new heart and a new covenant. He says to his people, and I will never leave you or forsake you. It's a statement from Genesis 20:15 that's applied here. When we are close to God, we are becoming sanctified. We are becoming holy because God changes our hearts to what? To be more like his. That's what being born again is. Born again means we are being born again to be more like him. We are being born again to be God's, his children, the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 103 says, 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He is our shepherd, our high priest, our king. And that's the confidence that we hold as we worship God truly and truly love one another. And it's this kind of love that is alien to the world. In fact, I'll say this, you should be prepared to face the consequences of living this way. Even saying what I said from this passage today will get you canceled, maybe even fired from your job. We are not in the place of at least getting imprisoned or killed yet, yet. But if you get fired, here's my advice to you. If you get fired, you get fired. If you get mistreated, you get mistreated. Now, that might not seem like good advice or any kind of consoling advice, but it is advice because the author was writing to his audience, the same audience similar to us who was anxious. They were anxious because they didn't want to get mistreated. Who wants to get mistreated? Nobody wants to get mistreated. Who wants to get fired? No one wants to get fired. No one wants to go to prison for what they confess. But if it means going against what we confessed, the Christian says, then so be it. And yes, you have brothers and sisters who will stand alongside you here. That's the camaraderie that we were talking about in the beginning, but it is rooted in something even greater than man. What is our camaraderie rooted in? Verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so this is our confession. The confession is, the Lord is my helper. And this is our expression. Our expression is, I will not fear. And this is our boast. What can man do to me? In God we trust, we are not afraid. What can men do to us? It's when we recognize that we trust in God that we can come to this place of exultant and triumph, this boast. What can man do to me? Christians, we are not to live for the self. We are not called to serve idols. They will pass away. They will fall. We are to live for God, who is eternal. His kingdom will never fail. And we are called now to live in brotherly love. I want you to see who needs help here. Pray for those that are afflicted here. And by doing so, 
you do the will of God. Praise God for showing us what love is by showing us first on the cross when he gave his life for us and he called us brothers. Let us now do the same for one another as it honors God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us, the encouragement, the warnings, all of it, to build and sanctify us, to lift our souls up to you. Help us to be people that are true worshipers and people that truly love one another. Let's take this time to pray, and as the Lord has convicted you through his word, I ask that you offer up a prayer to the Lord and ask him to sanctify you in every way, especially these two do's and these two do-nots. Lift up a heart to him so that you may live a holy life to God, pleasing him and loving your neighbor. Let's pray.